0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to another Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. You could be listening on Analog, 855 a.m or on digital 3CR. And, of course, through your computer, streaming or podcast via our website, 3cr.org.au. On the program today, we travel to Paraguay, a small landlocked country in South America, with PhD candidate and journalist here at 3CR, Sasha Gilles lacargas Then on to an international campaign, to take action against brisbane-based multinational mining company oceana gold who have wreaked havoc in northern philippines and after being forced out of el salvador there is a possibility they will return the neckbar rallies were held in melbourne on may the 15th and in other capital cities to commemorate the ethnic cleansing destruction which signalled the creation of the State of Israel, the ethnic cleansing and destruction that continues to this day. But let's not forget Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was, and let's also not forget that the Radiothon is coming up in just a few weeks, so be ready for that too. Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane, Lister when bitter, bitter, Bitter disappointment as a shroud spread over the nation last Wednesday when we heard the sad news that our real head of state, forget that inbred chap in his most gracious majesty's home country, real head of state, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Joe Biden capital, announced he couldn't make it to Trouba due to serious domestic issues like uh, this trip to Astra, Astra. Which one is it, the one next to Germany or the other one? Uh, "'The other one, Mr. President, the the one spending trillions on our merchants of death. Uh, "'Well, of course, I, I ordered them to, but but God, is that worth having to put up with them? To "'Tell them I can't make it. Tell them, oh, you'll think of something. "'I told them, Mr. President, He he said he'll come here and lick your boots. "'Oh, God, is there no peace in whipping up war?' I'm sick of saying we have a very special relationship, our closest friend, and all that rubbish to all these nondescripts. This devastating decision will release the millions we would have spent on security and the lavish dinners and events and entertainment for our head of state, and a couple of other of its acolytes, a a couple of other nondescripts. But as a positive, we could spend that on the poorest of the poor. We put to our deputy big supremo and minister for being offensive and train-killing Richard malls the bad guys. Don't be silly. Why waste an opportunity to bolster our train-killing capabilities at a time of regional tensions, two birds with the one, really, because that will make Joe Biden capital even more pleased with us. Yet, despite the cruel disappointment... Life must go on, despite also our climate change policy, if there is such a thing as climate change, which may mean life cannot go on. Which wouldn't worry the Simpsons characters, because, believe it or not, they're not real life, not real people, but top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for striving to do its bit, even though it knows there is no such thing as, by attacking the Minister for Fossils, Chris Bowen the capital, with its renowned balance and objectivity under, Do Chris, it's scraping barrel! Photo of Chris in a Simpsons character. Chris Bowen at Capital has been accused of getting his knowledge of nuclear energy from The Simpsons, the story opens, points out nuclear energy is essential to address climate change if there is, quoting no less an impartial authority than the former head of the troubler nuclear science organisation attacking Bowen too for suggesting storing nuclear waste was was a, a bit of a problem. Bowen too influenced by the heavily biased Greenpeace, he said, which has no idea what it's talking about, unlike the whopping sins nuclear expert, with deep in the story a caring business class poly telling us, Bowen too must have got his ridiculous anti-nuclear argument from The Simpsons. See? Thus the headline and the photo and the opening par. True objective journalism like the eight-page special whopping Sin Defending Troublawazi Going Nuclear, which fell out of Friday's Lord Rupert of, Senior U.S. Ob and His Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country and Troublawazi train killers, eulogising the train-killing power we're getting with those trillions we're spending on train-killing. The nation must counter China's rapidly expanding navy, it warned the same media outlet which simply can't understand why evil China gets a bit upset and imposes tariffs on Troubler-Wazzy exports. We want their money, but we need to kill them in the interests of peace, and for eight pages we discover the fun, fun, fun of killing them with our nuclear arsenal, a, a fabulously exciting collection of toys for the boys. Thankfully, the trade-with plan to kill dichotomy, seeming contradiction, is no problem, for, under a big headline, China threat grows and so must we. The Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, penny left wing, says so. The Forkis plan will not derail significant recent trade breakthroughs, she assures us. There, no problem. And there... Balanced, objective reporting, Lord Rupert style. Unlike the gang of unpatriotic anti wazis, ex-polys, ex-premiers, academics and even the odd ex-train killer who signed a full-page ad questioning the Forcus deal and calling for a parliamentary inquiry. Obviously brainwashed because the ad was organised by that commie front, the Troublerwassie Institute. Enough said. Let's hope the signatories learn the error of their ways by reading Lord Rupert's oh-so-rational eight-page call to arms. But before we save the planet with nuclear waste, we will have saved the planet anyway, as the fossils this week iterated the simple solution to fossil pollution, the the burying-your-head-in-the-sand solution, carbon capture and storage, sequestration. Why Fossil Resources Minister Catherine King hit Mother Earth, told a Fossils Profits conference this week she emphatically backs uh, carbon capture and storage as the best way for the resources industry to reach net zero emissions. Well apart from one major barrier, highlighted for all of them by Woodside with Profits Supremo, Peg O'Neill before profits, the government, Despite Catherine's endorsement, the government is not providing the wherewithal for the your head-in-the-sand solution. So it needs to be developed, uh, but it helps you. Um, why should the government pay for it? Uh, well, the government wants us to reach net zero emissions, and we know that in the interests of the community, we must reach net zero without cutting out pollution. So it's the government's interests. So at present, your head-in doesn't work. Oh, no, it works. We we reject the suggestion that it doesn't work and has never worked anywhere. Uh, then why government funding to develop it? Well, we just have to tie up a few loose ends to make it work perfectly. I like, well, the capture bit and the uh, the storage bit. So there's the solution. We're all saved. That'll teach those goody-goody, greeny, commie, wooden-working-and-iron lots who reckon the government isn't doing nearly enough to address climate change, if there is. Oh, and good to see the new indexation of students' hex debts means the government will extract from tertiary students more than it will extract from the increased tax on those extracting our gas, proving what a cripplingly hard bargain they drove. Surprising that Peg, while calling for government funding to bury her head in the sand, hasn't expressed one word of complaint over the crippling tax. Perhaps it's because the government adopted the option which her ministry proposed. On great resource figures, we have to take notice when Two Blue Aussies' richest person, the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, proffers advice, kindly proffers advice, on how to make life better for all of us. Addressing a resource profits dinner, Gina Ronghart was reluctantly forced to criticise the socialists for making life just so difficult for the resource giants warning our standard of living would collapse if we didn't open more and more mines. And the bloody government makes it difficult by demanding irrelevant barriers like environmental studies or forcing them to have a bit of a chat with the indigenous owners, when everyone knows they're going to get approved anyway, so why waste time? We need to do far more, she said, direct quote, (coughs) to ensure our government far better understands and puts policies in place that actually welcomes and not deters investment. Uh, But but by doing what, Gina? Well, putting their money where my mouth is for a start. Gina also attacked the government's industrial relations agenda, which would make life far more difficult, well, nigh impossible, for caring employers like her and the other struggling resource and fossil behemoths. Doesn't it warm the cockles of our hearts to know that someone so filthy rich still cares not for herself, not for her increasingly filthy rich interests, but thinks only of what's best for all of us, for the social good? On having a bit of a chat with Indigenous owners, it's only a few months ago, San Tossus the Prophets argued that... Tiwi Island, islanders not all that happy with a pipeline from Santos's Barossa gas project north of Trublawazi going past their back door, their fishing back door, were not relevant persons and had no right to object, but sadly lost the case and was told it had to consult the Tiwi Islanders. So now it's running edge, telling us how much it just loves and respects Indigenous people. We are listening, it says, seeking relevant persons. What a good corporate citizen. And what thanks do they get? The bloody land-grabbing islanders are targeting the banks, funding the project, urging them not to fund the project. Poor Santos although its love and respect for Indigenous people doesn't seem to run to the Beetaloo Basin, where it intends to frack Mother Earth while ignoring the local owners who object, but clearly are not relevant persons on their own land. On those crippling working-class relations laws that so upset poor Gina, we saw wage growth soar to three-point-something percent. Our hearts bleed for poor, caring employers with inflation a mere twice that level. The Reserve Losses Bank telling us the only solution to inflation is to flatten the price of labour and ensure there are more and more unemployed. Governor Philip Lay, workers low, rubs his hands and congratulates himself every time the unemployment rate goes up. Uh, But, Philip, obviously, if we must have more and more unemployed for the good of the greatest little economic order of them all, we must substantially increase job seeker payments. Certainly not. That would clearly be inflationary. If if it's not a personal question, Philip, what salary do you struggle along on week by week? It is personal, and it's none of your business. Uh, Sorry and the business profits council says the government's same jobs same pay laws would be unworkable not because they want caring employers like the airline which used to be our airline and the big true blue aussie bhp for bloody huge profits bloody huge polluter to keep paying labor higher workers lots less in wages and conditions for the same work but because of its perverse effect on workers jobs and pay see giving labour-hire workers more, more pay would be perverse against their interests, showing, as usual, the Business Profits Council cares only for the workers it so cares about. Finally, we have to give top marks for bravery and courage, surely a, a sorry, police bravery award of some sort for those giant mine coppers who tasered a 95-year-old woman in a nursing home. And it got worse. When I recorded this for Saturday's version, I wasn't aware of an even more dangerous threat to the coppers. She was on a walking frame. Can we think of anything more dangerous than a 95-year-old on a walking frame? Good afternoon.
1: And many thanks once again to Mr. Kevin Healy for his week that was. And tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock until 10, you can hear Kevin with friends on City Limits.
3: Hi there, it's busy homosexual and community darling Dean R.
4: Curie and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 855 AM.
5: Keep Radical Radio alive. Community Radio is everything and I love it.
6: Wellways has its annual Woodcock Public Lecture on Thursday the 25th of May from 6.15 to 8.15pm. This year's topic is about mental distress and is one of the most relatable human experiences we can encounter. History has documented the unique experience of distress through compelling art, music, and literature. Hear from Matt Ball and Helena Ronfeld, who both have lived experience, and from Psychiatrist Professor Richard Newton. Go to wellways.org and find Woodcock Lecture to register online. A 3CR supporter.
7: Rasa bin Manasile, Isai Nyani Ilay Raja bin Isay Kondatam Celebrating the wondrous music of Mastro Ilya Raja on 3CR every Friday 8 to 9 p.m. Starting 26th of May.
8: month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media
9: during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
8: Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
2: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03
0: 9419 8377.
8: Or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
1: continuing our monthly focus on a country in Latin America with PhD candidate and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lukakis. And today, a country
0: we hear little about,
1: and that country is landlocked Paraguay.
0: And I will just preface this by saying, I think probably apart from Cuba, Paraguay is one of the countries that I'm most fascinated by. And there's a few reasons for that, but chiefly because it's, In spite of being such a tiny, seemingly unimportant country, you know, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of the Americas and the world, it has been witness to some pretty astonishing historical events and different types of government that are really, really quite interesting you know we've had one of the largest most populous most long-running indigenous civilizations in the world which of course I'll get to a little bit later we've had of course colonization as normal but then a very successful even almost socialist form of leadership immediately after independence in the 19th century all the way up to you know a horrific neo-nazi regime in the 20th century. So we've had this massive, really sort of epic sort of history take place in Paraguay. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn, um, and a lot of warnings to take from that history as well. But of course, as always, we start with the indigenous peoples of what is today Paraguay. Um, So Paraguay, just to give everyone an idea, it's a small country, but it's quite easily divided into two distinct regions. In the east, we have the more sort of fertile, I guess what you could consider temperate grasslands and jungles, and that is where the agricultural Guarani culture lived. This is the civilization I was speaking about before. They're one of the oldest. They inhabited that region of Latin America for at least a millennia before the Spanish and other Europeans arrived. So, a really, really long standing and entrenched culture in that part of Paraguay to this day half the Paraguayan population continues to speak Guarani either as a first language or a very well-known second language. So there's, there's a number of reasons as to why this culture has been able to survive a lot better than many other indigenous civilizations. And again, we will explain that as we go on. But just to give an idea that these Guarani had a very sophisticated agricultural civilization in place, very horizontal in terms of leadership. There wasn't one sort of chief or emperor like in the case of the Aztecs and the Incas. It was a very sort of horizontal power structure and This was both a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing in times of peace when, you know, you had no one leader attempting to impose their will on the rest of the Guaraní tribes. But, of course, when you had invaders from over the sea come across, the Spanish and other Europeans, this sort of leadership structure was not always the most effective when mounting some sort of resistance. Now, on the other side of Paraguay, the western half of Paraguay, we have what's called the Chaco, which is... In some parts, it's a very dry savanna grassland, and in other parts, it's pretty much just desert. It's very inhospitable. Even to this day, there's not very many major settlements out there, if any at all. And over on in that part of Paraguay, we had the Huey which were a nomadic warrior civilization. And they actually fought quite a lot with the Guarani. They would raid into Guarani lands. But it, it just goes to show how Paraguay has this very, very interesting sort of series of biomes, and that has actually influenced the different indigenous civilizations that came to live there. In total, we actually had a very large indigenous population with the Guarani side in the east. Estimates put the population as being up to 1 million before the Spanish arrived. So that's a, you know, that's a very large population of Indigenous people. That's even very large if we compare it to the Incas and the Aztecs, particularly considering how small the the actual geographic area was. So, you know, this was a very prosperous and populous region prior to European colonisation. Colonisation, unlike other parts of Latin America, actually took quite a lot longer and it was quite a convoluted process. We didn't just have the arrival of one of the infamous conquistadors who then began a bloody campaign like we had in Peru, Mexico, the Caribbean, most of the rest of Latin America. Um, in fact, the Spanish first arrived in Paraguay in 1516 and they actually arrived in the form of, a, of an expedition, an exploration mission. And that was led by Juan Villas de Solis, He's a Spanish explorer. He actually wasn't a conquistador at all. Um, And he was attempting to essentially follow the Rio de la Plata. So that's if he's entered in the bay around Buenos Aires in Argentina and Uruguay. And he was following that river up through Central South America and that of course eventually leads into the Rio Paraguay which is the river that goes through modern-day Paraguay but he failed to actually make his way up through into the heart of Paraguay so he sort of reached the I guess the entrance of the Rio Paraguay and then the river was was too inhospitable they were too ill-equipped and they had to end up turning back and returned to Buenos Aires so that was the first little foray and they didn't even encounter any Guarani tribes then so you know, they weren't even aware of the sorts of civilizations that were living in Paraguay at that time. And Paraguay, pretty much for the next 10 years almost, ends up being forgotten, really. No one bothers to try and penetrate that interior. But we do again hear about it, and the Spanish again hear about it, due to the exploits of another explorer. Now, this time he's a Portuguese explorer. His name is Alexo Garcia, and he was part of De Solis's expeditions he ended up being lost during the course of this expedition he we don't know exactly what happened some of the reports and the letters from that expedition say he fell overboard or the ship simply left him when he was going out to explore so anyway he was left in this wilderness by himself and he actually ended up meeting one of the guarani tribes and he lived with them for eight years so you know this is really remarkable that he was able to sort of integrate into Guarani culture and, and live among this indigenous civilization. And he lived there for eight years, you know, total peace. He contributed to the Guarani community. And then he ended up accompanying these tribes when they began to attack the Inca Empire, which was encroaching on their territory from the north. So he accompanied the Guarani when they were starting to launch their counterattack against the Incas in 1524. And he was actually the first to arrive at the site of the modern Paraguayan capital, Asuncion. He also discovered, quote-unquote, you know, for the Europeans, he discovered uh, Iguazu Falls, which is the major, you know, really spectacular waterfall that sits at the border of Brazil, Argentina and Paraguay. And... Then he ended up returning with the Guarani after this campaign. They were successful in repelling the Incas. They stopped the Incas from coming into Paraguay. And he was uh, eventually, he was killed by the Guarani over a misunderstanding. So eventually he did end up being killed. Uh, But there were other Spaniards around during this campaign between the Peruvians and the Guarani. And these other Spaniards had spoken with, Alexo Garcia, they had seen the Guarani and they ended up making their way back to Buenos Aires and they brought news of this civilization and of this new river system, the Rio Paraguay, that had not been explored yet except by Alexo Garcia. So they brought news of this back to the Spanish colonists on the coast, you know, in modern day Argentina and Uruguay. And it was at this point, really, that we begin to see the concerted effort to actually conquer Paraguay. The the task is entitled to Don Pedro de Mendoza, uh, who was a conquistador. He was entrusted by the Spanish crown with conquering the Rio Paraguay and all of the surrounding territories. And this was chiefly because they thought it was a route into the Inca Empire. That's the main reason. There was no actual strategic or resource value in Paraguay itself. This wasn't even a concept yet at this point. Paraguay was not even a thing. It was just uh, hoped that the river system would eventually lead to an easy access to the Inca Empire or, or, you know, sort of like a southern entrance into the Inca Empire. This expedition, this next expedition, led by um, Don Pedro de Mendoza, was also, you know, very, very nearly failed. And that's chiefly because he was an incredibly cruel individual. He would kill his own Spanish men for even the slightest insubordination. He would torture and kill indigenous collaborators and people that they'd press ganged, basically, into service for this expedition. And as a result, this Spanish conquistador, he almost failed in his mission. They almost didn't even make it up the Rio Paraguay because of this really, really cruel and twisted approach to discipline and to disciplining their men. But there were other more intelligent, more savvy conquistadors that were part of this expedition, chiefly Domingo Martínez de Irala and Juan de Ayolas. Now these two were quite intelligent, they had had backgrounds in exploration, a little bit of an education as well, um, like a scientific background, so they were able to counterbalance, I suppose, Mendoza's more cruel and, uh, you know, uncouth treatment of these people. They ended up making it up to Fuerte Olimpo, which is on the border of Brazil. So they sort of penetrated a bit more into the east of the country. But in the end, they end up turning back. Again, they run out of supplies. The Guarani do not offer them safe haven. They don't attack them. There's no you know direct conflict between this expedition and the Guarani. But all they find is a few silver trinkets. That's all the Guarani offer them, a few silver trinkets. And they think, well we don't have the resources, we don't have the supplies to keep this going, and clearly we haven't got anywhere near the Inca Empire because there's no gold, it's just these little silver trinkets that they're giving us. So they turn back again. There's a final expedition that does that does finally achieve success and actually establish a sort of settlement and a colony in Paraguay, and that's led by Juan Salazar de Espinosa. He's another conquistador. He was a member of Mendoza's original expedition, and he takes charge of this um, attempt to discover and conquer Paraguay. And he actually officially establishes the city of Asuncion in 1537. So they make it all the way up to Rio Paraguay and they establish a settlement and it's a small settlement, it's only about 1,500 people, um, and that's after 20 years of Asuncion existing. So, you know, this is a very, very small, remote backwater sort of colony, even by the standards of other parts of Spanish America. So, really, it's a frontier town. All it sort of serves in terms of its purpose for the empire is a sort of refueling, resupplying station for those who are going further into Inca territory in Bolivia and then eventually into Peru. So... It's not an important territory at this point uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Well, when did it become important? It became important about 20 years later. So we're talking the uh, 1550s, 1560s, and that's chiefly because Irala, uh, I mentioned him before, he was one of the uh, members of Mendoza's original expedition. He ends up becoming the governor of Paraguay and of Asuncion, and he encouraged a lot of European migration to Paraguay. He began to sort of encourage trade, commerce. He, be- he began to understand the significance of the Rio Paraguay as a sort of a commercial riverway, uh, you know, the significance it had, uh, because it was, you know, really useful. It connected the mines in Bolivia and Peru down through to Buenos Aires. It was actually really critical once Irala began to understand and develop this infrastructure for the Spanish. And he ended up developing this eastern part of Paraguay quite significantly. He was, I'm not going to call him humane, he was not humane, he was a cruel conquistador, but compared to others, he was remarkably understanding with a lot of indigenous tribes. He had peaceful, actually quite peaceful relations with the Guaraní. They actually traded together um, quite amicably for two decades, but he was not able to maintain peace with the Chaco tribes. So in the West, those um, nomadic warrior tribes, they were very, very hostile to the Spanish and they began launching full-scale attacks against this colony in the 1550s and the 1560s. The reason behind this, Irala originally was very resistant towards the land-owning elite um, that were coming in from Argentina looking to sort of expand um, the encomienda system to take slaves from the Guarani and the Chaco tribes. He actually resisted that for quite a long time, for about a decade, because he was aware of the sort of very delicate tensions between the colonists and the Guarani and the Chaco tribes, but eventually he had to give in. Eventually, you know, they were the source of his financing, they were the source of his money, and he had no choice but to relent eventually. And by 1561, 1562, we have full-scale revolt of the Guarani and the Chaco tribes against the Spanish. So this very brief period of prosperity, you know, for the Spanish, relative prosperity, was ended like that. Hopes were dashed. There was all-out war, chaos, perpetual conflicts after that time, pretty much up until independence. It became, as I said, Paraguay became this backwater again, not really very significant in terms of anything because all of that infrastructure that was being built by Idala to serve as a sort of trade um, node, I guess, in the middle of of South America, that all sort of collapsed, really, and it just became a backwater again. And its economy became very subservient to Buenos Aires. So any trade that did happen, all of the benefits were gained by the you know emerging bourgeois in Buenos Aires, that sort of maritime elite. Paraguay didn't even have very many wealthy individuals there to speak of either. These wars were very bloody. It was um, very costly for the Spaniards and it was also very costly for the indigenous peoples. But the Guarani and the Chaco tribes, they did actually manage to get a better deal out of things than other indigenous people because of that sort of, you know, they had a very long history there. As I said, you know, at least a millennia, that's, that's how long they were there before the Europeans arrived. So we still had 50% of the indigenous population wiped out during these wars and also because of disease and other related factors. But when you compare that to the 90%, for example, that Mexican indigenous people suffered in terms of being wiped out, or 90% of the Inca Empire, 50% was not as severe. So, and that's also why we continue to have the survival of Guarani culture and Guarani language today in Paraguay, because there was still, and there still is, a large indigenous population in Paraguay. And also, a large mestizo population, so the mix of Europeans and indigenous people as well. So that's quite interesting. And that's also due in part to the fact that the Jesuits became quite prominent in Paraguay as a colony. Um, This is also because Irala, as I said, he was a little bit more intellectual, a little bit more sort of aware of some of these intricacies around, you know, how to um, interact with indigenous people. Now, the Jesuits weren't saints. They used indigenous people as slave labor. They uprooted entire tribes from their homes and put them on missions, you know, really degrading and terrible treatment. But they did also prevent the massive genocide that occurred in other parts of Latin America. Because, of course, you know, in in this sort of twisted way, the Jesuits thought that they were Christianizing and protecting the Guarani people. They couldn't make it into the Chaco. The Chaco tribes were totally hostile, but they did do it with the Guarani. And as a result, I mean, you still had this terrible indoctrination and you know, uprooting of families and communities, but the Jesuits also did not permit, you know, the sort of widespread genocide massacre Uh, slavery that characterised the experience of other indigenous cultures in Paraguay. So that was quite interesting. But eventually the Jesuits get expelled as well uh, because the wealthy Spanish landowners want the Guaraní to work as slaves. The Jesuits don't allow it. And the Spanish crown ends up expelling them in the 1580s, 1590s. So it's a very short-lived sort of little experiment with the Jesuits. Uh, but we can still see the legacies of that today. I mean, what, the only UNESCO heritage site in Paraguay today is the largest mission, the largest Jesuit mission or the ruins of that mission. So it's quite interesting the way that Paraguay developed in a sort of unique way compared to other Latin American colonies. Of course, independence eventually arrives, you know, we have the start of the the 19th century, the 1810s, 1820s, the French Revolution is taking place in Europe, Napoleon overthrows the Spanish monarchy um, in mainland Spain, and we see the birth of independence movements among the Creole elite in different parts of Latin America. These ideas took a very long time to reach Paraguay itself. Unlike other parts, you know, more sort of cosmopolitan cities, Buenos Aires in Argentina, Caracas in Venezuela, Bogotá in Colombia, where there was this sort of percolation of different ideas from the Enlightenment, for example, that took a very long time to reach Paraguay because, of course, Paraguay remained this insular, isolated sort of backwater, you know. There, there wasn't very much development after Irala was taken out of the picture. Originally, the elite in Paraguay, when all of this independence movement phenomenon was taking place, they were loyal to the Spanish crown. So the elite did not harbor these sorts of independent sentiments. And that's also because Argentina, back then it was the United Provinces of Rio de la Plata, after it became independent, it wanted to absorb Paraguay. And the Paraguayan elite were very anti-Argentinian because of this, and they thought, anything including supporting the Spanish monarchy was better than being subservient to Buenos Aires because, as I mentioned, Paraguay's prosperity and its trade was totally subservient to the colony of uh, Buenos Aires, the colony of Argentina, back when they were part of the Spanish Empire, and they thought that the exact same thing would happen if Argentina were to absorb them even as an independent country. The Argentinians end up sending a number of expeditionary forces to try and conquer Paraguay, and these pro-Spanish elites, these pro-Spanish military figures, end up resisting them. And they end up actually defeating the Argentinians after quite a few bloody skirmishes. It's really, if not for the, for the intervention of one individual, it's quite likely that Paraguay would have remained this sort of isolated backwater. But there is one individual who ends up managing to insert himself into a position of power in Paraguay, and he completely transforms the history of Paraguay going forward. Now this man, and I will, I will go into exactly how he managed to do this in a second, that his name was Gaspar Rodriguez de Francia, often just referred to as Francia. This man's history is still shrouded in a little bit of mystery. We're not exactly 100% sure all the details of his life. What we do know is that his father was a tobacco planter. So not, not a plantation owner, an actual, you know, an agricultural worker, a campesino type figure. There was speculation, rumour, that um, his father was mulatto, so part African, which, you know, in, in Paraguay was very rare. There were very few slaves from the African colonies in Paraguay. But, of course, it's an indication that he came from the lower classes, that he came from the popular classes. And he was lucky enough, Francia was lucky enough to be able to attend school in a Catholic mission. So he actually got an education, even though he was from a humble origin. And he was so brilliant during his schooling that he actually ended up completing not only a master's but a phd at the university of asuncion so we can get an idea of how remarkable his intellect must have been to have got a phd in this time in the colony of paraguay and, and then the, the post-independence paraguay he must have been a remarkable figure and he ended up becoming very popular In Asuncion, he he ended up becoming a mayor of the capital city, and eventually he became a very prominent figure with close ties to these royalist generals who were fighting against Argentina. Now, he himself was not a royalist, He was inspired by the Enlightenment. He was inspired by Rousseau's social contract. He was a very radical figure because of this education he had received. And he actually openly said to these generals in one of their meetings, it's it's documented. He said, in my opinion, it doesn't matter whether our king is Argentinian or Spanish. A king is just as terrible regardless of nationality. This was not always received well by the royalist Paraguayan elite, But during the conflict with Argentina, they started to squabble among themselves for various different reasons, you know, disagreements over military strategy, and they saw Francia as the only man they could trust. He wasn't linked to any major military factions. He had no military history. He was a widely respected politician, a widely respected academic, even among the popular classes. And they, at his suggestion, made him essentially supreme leader, supreme dictator of Paraguay. They allowed him to implement a state of emergency and the generals actually endowed him with extreme emergency powers. So he actually became known as El Supremo. Uh, His official title was supreme dictator. That's actually what he was called in Paraguay. And he implemented a revolutionary project in Paraguay that has not received almost any attention really outside of Paraguay itself. And it's remarkable because the society he created, um, and I, I will tell you what the society was like, it was absolutely incredible, particularly considering the time. Francia was able, as I said, to rule by decree. He had pretty much no checks on his power, and he ended up dismantling the military institutions of Paraguay. And he bought up lower-class people, campesinos, all of these, you know, members of the popular classes in Paraguay into positions of military authority. So he had total loyalty among this new class of military figure, which came from the campesinos, which came from indigenous tribes, from the Guarani. And there was an attempted coup against him in 1820, so six years after he assumed power in 1814, that he ruthlessly crushed it. Francia... Essentially, really, I'm going to describe it as this, and I will justify why I describe his project like this. He implemented a socialist system in Paraguay, essentially. He completely cut off trade with the rest of the world. There was no foreign um, investment in Paraguay between 1814 and 1840, which was when he ruled. And Paraguay, as a result, became totally self-sufficient. So he fostered national industry, particularly the cattle industry and production of yerba mate, which is a an herbal plant. that's very popular as tea in Argentina and Brazil and Paraguay and Uruguay as well. And this was totally state-owned industry that he fostered, chiefly through very, very harsh protectionist policies. So, you know, there were very, very big levies that he put on his products that were being exported to neighbouring Latin American countries. And he did not take out a single foreign loan, a single bit of foreign debt. When he gave up power, Paraguay had no debt to pay, absolutely zero foreign debt. He organized society to benefit the poor and the indigenous. In fact, he ended up being called Guasu or Great Lord by the Guaraní tribes for what he did for Paraguay. He created state-controlled hospitals, schools, homeless shelters, and All foreign travelers, the few foreign travelers that went through and documented their experiences in Paraguay at this time, including U.S. diplomats and U.S. spies, they said there was such an effective distribution of wealth that there was no begging, there was no hunger, and there was no conflict in Paraguay. Now, let's just let that sink in. So this was a society in the 1800s in Paraguay that essentially implemented socialism. There was no elite at this point, after the attempted coup in 1820 by those royalist figures, Francia completely crushed the opposition, they were either killed or they had to flee into exile, and you had this remarkable distribution of wealth where even the poorest people had enough to survive and and in fact had enough to even prosper within their you know their very sort of humble means. 98% of Paraguay's land was state controlled and it was granted or parceled out to indigenous communities and peasant communities as a sort of lease from the state, and the expectation was that they would then cultivate some sort of produce or livestock to then give to the state, which the state would then sell part of the earnings and then give part of the earnings back to those communities. So, you know, really, really remarkable policies that uh, Francia ended up implementing. So we had major agrarian reform, we had social welfare policies. Asuncion was the first Latin American city to have a rail network because of this state-led industrialization that he ended up championing. Now, as I said, in 1840, he ended up giving up power voluntarily. He left Paraguay debt free, did not take a single loan out from any major foreign banks. He had a trade surplus, so Paraguay was actually rolling in money by the time he gave up power. And he, every year since 1814 until 1840, he handed in leftover money from his own state salary. So he was a very frugal man and he would publicly hand in whatever was left over from his salary. He never spent over what he was earning as President of Paraguay, as the Supreme Dictator of Paraguay.
1: An important part of his, his time in power was to educate the people of Paraguay.
0: Yes, and this was really critical, and this was why his project endured for 20 years even after he, even after he gave up power. Part of his campaign to educate universal state-supported primary and secondary schools. Interestingly, he actually banned tertiary education. Now, this was quite an extreme measure that he implemented, but his idea was that in spite of the fact that he was educated in a university, he said that Paraguay, to remain as a people's state, should not be... I guess influenced by these sorts of outside European ideas. So he actually did not allow Paraguayans to go to university because he thought that Paraguayan people had to, you know, continue doing this sort of like popular work to remain connected to this sort of project. So, you know, it's an interesting idea. I, I think, um, for the time, maybe, Francia thought he was doing the right thing. But another key part of his education policy was he was very, very against the influence of the Catholic Church, Um, not only in education, but just their influence in society. And he ended up pretty much eliminating their influence in Paraguay. So people were still allowed to worship, go to Catholic churches, but there were no bishops. There was no sort of form of Catholic authority at all in Paraguay during the, the years of Francia. And he also was very adamant that the Catholic Church should not be allowed to educate people in Paraguay. He said that they were indoctrinating people, that they were turning people against the revolutionary project, that they were trying to engender these very traditional conservative ideas to try and corrupt what was taking place in Paraguay. And so education became the sole remit of the state and of government institutions. And it was very effective. I mean, by the time he finished ruling, there was not a single Paraguayan that couldn't read and write. Illiteracy had been eliminated. This was actually reported by U.S. diplomatic personnel who were sent there as a, on a sort of like scouting mission to see what was happening.
1: And we conclude this look at Paraguay with Sasha Gillis on the program next week.
8: Are you feeling depressed about the future of our planet? The Eco-Socialism 2023 conference could address your worries by providing a platform for radical solutions. Activists from around the world will examine the links between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. You'll hear from Japanese Marxist Kohei Saito, author of Capital in the Anthropocene, who argues that capitalism's pursuit of unlimited growth and profits the major barrier to ecological sustainability. Inspirational speakers from the Asia Pacific region, including India, Pakistan, and the Philippines, will take up the fight for climate justice and against war and fascism. Eco socialism also highlights women's and queer oppression, First Nation sovereignty and so much more, including a session featuring former refugee Baruz Buchani For more information and bookings, go to our website, ecosocialism.org.au. Ecosocialism 2023, A World Beyond Capitalism, Saturday July 1 to Sunday July 2 at Victorian Trades Hall. A 3CR
1: supporter. everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be
5: involved in. For more information go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3 cr supporter.
8: Get ready to add your support during our
9: annual radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser,
0: June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394198377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023.
8: Stay tuned, stay radical. In March this year, 77
6: organisations
1: united to issue an international global appeal, calling for their respective governments to take action against Brisbane-based multinational mining giant Oceana Gold. These include the six countries where the gold and copper miner has operated, Australia, Canada, El Salvador, New Zealand, Philippines and the US. Today we focus on the Philippines and El Salvador, and I'm joined by Catherine Coomans, the research coordinator and Asia Pacific Programme Coordinator with Mining Watch Canada. Beginning Catherine with sad news from the Philippines, news that has devastated the community of Nueva Biscaya on the eighth of may, the death of the Governor, Carlos Manipi Adelia at the age of seventy eight.
6: Yeah, absolutely. It's really amazing. He has been a politician since 1975. This is Carlos Pediglia. And at the last, when he passed away on May 5th, he was a governor of Nueva Vizcaya in the Philippines and was in his third term. He had held every kind of office you could imagine. Um, I think he started as a mayor, And he's been a senator. So he has had a long political career, but has a really positive legacy that he leaves behind. And I first met him in 2015. And the last time I met him was 2019. So between 2015 and 2019, I returned numerous times to Nueva Vizcaya, the province where he was the governor and where he was a champion of the people who were affected by Oceana Gold. He very much, um, opposed the impacts of mining in the province and had even at one point, I think it was 2010, had actually championed a no-go zone bill in, in parliament to, or in their, in their Congress, I guess it is, to stop, you know, create Nueva Vizcaya as a no-go zone for mining. So he was very concerned about the impacts and very much supportive of the, the indigenous Ifagao and Tuali people. In DDPO, where Oceana Gold was mining, was anyone listening to his calls? Well, in the Philippines, he was successful in terms of of, of actually supporting the people. So at one point when the mines lease actually um, ran out in two thousand and nineteen, the lease of Oceana Gold's mine in DDpo in Nueva Sky ran out. But the mine, the company kept operating and so the people blockaded the mine and said, well, you're, you don't have a proper operating lease, uh, license anymore and, you know, we're, we're going to stop you from mining because you've caused so much harm. And he supported the people. He, he came out with an ordinance that said, yes, this is correct. And he even fought that in court a number of times in order to make sure that the blockade could be kept in place and the company could be stopped from trying to mine without a lease. So he was very directly supportive of that struggle to stop that mine from from going ahead and from starting up again. And I'd imagine that made him a few enemies? Well, I'm sure it did, but I think his political support, which was very broad in the province, I think that protected him, and he was able to take the stances that he took. He fought for a new mining bill in the Philippines, so the 1995 Mining Act in the Philippines is really problematic in terms of allowing very, very lenient terms for investors and opening the country up to a lot of really problematic international investors like Oceana Gold, and he fought for a new mining bill that would be more equitable for the people and would provide greater rights for people to to stop mines that they don't feel should happen, and then, as I mentioned, he also fought to create a no-go zone in his province. And nonetheless, he was in his third term as governor. So he somehow, I think, had enough support among the people to be able to weather whatever storms, uh, I'm sure the industry was was breathing down his neck all the time.
1: And not just the indigenous peoples around the mining areas, but also wider indigenous peoples' concerns. And I read that he's, he's established 45 schools and, mainly for the indigenous people because he saw that education of indigenous people was so important
6: absolutely and so there were two really strong causes that he that he championed and both of them he found incompatible with mining and one was indigenous rights and indigenous education but also the other one was agriculture he came from an agricultural background and the northwest sky is actually very very rich it's quite amazing when i was there to see the huge fruit tree groves um, that are there it's very rich in vegetables and fruits and the buses that run around the province all have big pictures of vegetables and fruits on the sides of them there's a lot of pride in the the way that they are able to provide fruits and vegetables to manila for example And he was a real champion of that. In fact, one of the things he said was that agriculture sustains, I'm quoting one of his many quotes, agriculture sustains and no amount of money can compensate for its destruction. So he championed both indigenous people's rights and he championed agriculture, which he saw as, you know, something that had sustained the people of that province for thousands of years, as he put it.
1: And so much was destroyed by bringing this mine into operation
6: yeah it it it's been horrible actually um the mine has sort of been there's been exploration around that area for a really long time and as early as two thousand and eleven, the Philippine Human rights Commission had actually said that the, that that mine should there should never be a mine there because of the human rights abuses that had happened just in the in something like twenty years of exploration that were going on but in two thousand and thirteen the mine did go ahead under Oceana gold. And in no time at all, there were real problems with the waterways around the mine, with contamination. Um, As Governor um, Padilla said himself, the water buffalo wouldn't even drink from or go near the waterways or drink from them because of the contamination. And it was also that same water from the rivers around the mine that the people used to irrigate their rice fields, and they couldn't because the rice died. The water table also went down, so the mine was part open pit and part underground, and it was dewatering all the time, and by dewatering it was actually lowering the water table around the mine so people's springs were drying up. It was getting harder and harder for people to get fresh water to drink, and in fact they ultimately had to drink bottled water because their fresh water springs had dried up. And then there were human rights issues. People who opposed the mine, which was really, you know, the predominant population in Didipio, the uh, elected barangay council and officials, this is the village council and officials, were all opposed to the mine. People were being what they call red tagged. In other words, there were just notices being put up, um, banners and folders going around naming the people who opposed the mine, including a uh, parish priest and including local officials and, and local community members and saying that they were in cahoots with the communist guerrilla movement in the Philippines, the New People's Army, which is essentially putting, you know, like a target on people's backs. Um, They call it red tagging because they're, you know, they're being said to have affiliations with the communist guerrilla movement, but that makes them targets for extrajudicial killings, for arbitrary arrests. So it's a very, very dangerous Practice and only people who were opposed to the mine were red tagged. So the human rights abuses are quite widespread as well around that around that mine.
1: And he also travelled to El Salvador, a long way from his hometown in the Philippines. What was the connection?
6: Well, this was so remarkable. At the same time that he was supporting the people, you know, in the DPO in his own province um, against the horrors of this mine in march of 2017 there was a big debate going on in el salvador because oceana gold also had a concession there and wanted to start up a mine there and the salvadoran people were very much opposed to this and particularly concerned about impacts to their waters this is a landlocked country and it has one major river system that the mine was going to be impacting and this is what water this river system was was the source of water for for most of the people in el salvador and so there were was a group of people in el salvador called the the salvadoran water defenders who were trying really hard to make sure that this mine would never start and they reached out to Carlos Padilla in the Philippines. They heard about the struggle in the Philippines. There's a lot of story. I'm skipping over here. You know, there were connections through myself and through and through people at um, the Institute for Policy Studies, Institute of Policy Studies in the States. Robin Broad and John Cavanaugh and wanted to know if it would be possible for Governor Padilla to actually come to El Salvador and talk about the actual realities of living with Oceana Gold in your backyard and the harms that people were enduring, particularly to water and to human rights. And in March of 2017, he actually traveled to El Salvador where he spoke to Salvadoran legislature, he spoke to people, he was tireless, um, and he also met and spoke to the president at the time, Sanchez Seren. And right around the time, like just shortly after he had been there, there was a vote, and it was a really important bill that had been tabled, and it was the vote was to end all metal mining in El Salvador in order to save the country's rivers and waterways and this vote passed and this was the first country in the world to actually vote against all metal mining going forward and it put an end to the oceana gold project Um, oceana gold had to leave the country after that so you know it's really quite remarkable that he flew all the way from the philippines halfway across the world to el salvador What he did was he brought with him slides and pictures of what the actual problems were so that people in El Salvador could could see what their future might be if this mine were to go ahead. And so he made it very real for them. And it was also the way in which he did this because he was a very humble person. He was a very calm, soft-spoken he was very careful not to, you know, intrude. He kept telling them, you know, I'm here as a guest. I'm just here to show you what we are suffering so that you can make your own decisions. And and remarkably, in March of 2017, they actually voted against any renewed metal mining in the country.
1: That's a wonderful story, isn't it? Bring us up to 2023 and an international meeting about Oceania Gold. Where was that held and who was there?
6: What's happened in 2023 is we issued a statement. So there was a statement issued by organizations from six different countries that in one way or another involved with Oceana Gold. So there's Australia, of course, because Brisbane is where the headquarters is of Oceana Gold and then Canada because Oceania Gold trades on our stock exchange and is also incorporated in British Columbia in Canada. And then other peoples who are affected by the operations of the mine, so from the Philippines, from New Zealand, where there's also an operating mine that is causing problems, and from the U.S. So there were six countries, and we created this statement um, where we detailed the harm being caused by the operations of this company in all of these places, and including also El Salvador, because the same water defenders that had brought Carlos Padilla, Governor Padilla, to El Salvador, five of them were arrested in January of this year. Five of the the exact same people that actually met with him and brought him to El Salvador were arbitrarily arrested and have basically almost been disappeared. We don't exactly know where they are since January of this year. So we issued this statement and the statement has been endorsed by 77 organizations. They have signed on, and we detail the harm that's been done by the company in New Zealand, in the U.S., and in the Philippines, as well as the um, you know, the, the threat to these five water defenders that had been so instrumental in making sure that uh, that significant bill passed to stop all metal mining in El Salvador. And where does it go from here? Well, right now, things are not looking great, I have to say. So we've lost Governor Padilla, but also, you know, under his watch, people were able to blockade the mine from 2019 to 2021. They held a blockade in front of the mine. The company did not have a lease all that time, so they shouldn't even have had to blockade, but the company was constantly trying to get in anyway. Um, and so they literally had to blockade, and he supported that as governor. He said they, this is a rightful blockade. And then in 2021, um, with the pres, current president well, or the president of the Philippines at that time, Duterte, he renewed the license of the mine. And so the blockade carried on for a while, but it was violently dispersed. And so the mine has started operating again. So that's where we are in the Philippines. That the mine has started operating again, um, as in, as of 2021. There's ongoing opposition to its operations by the indigenous Ifagao and Tuali people who say that they were not properly consulted and as under Philippine law. But nonetheless, the mine is, is operating again and the red tagging is also going on again. So people are again being threatened for their opposition to the mine. And in El Salvador, The the ongoing problem was that there had been no compensation made by Oceana Gold to people whose water, um, this is community water, that had been impacted just from the drilling. So when Oceana Gold was preparing to mine, they did a lot of drilling and testing and contaminated waterways, water in some of the communities, and so people were calling for compensation. But then this year, things have gone from bad to worse because, as I mentioned, five of the water defenders that were really instrumental in bringing Governor Padilla from the Philippines to El Salvador and were really, you know, pushing for the bill that was passed to stop all metal mining in El Salvador have been arbitrarily arrested and and kind of disappeared. We, We don't really know where they are, and there's quite a global campaign now to to try and protect them and bring them back. There is a new president um, since 2019 in El Salvador. This is President Bukele, and people are afraid that he is um, possibly going to overturn the mining bill that stopped mining in the country, that this may be repealed. So that would be rolling back the gains that were made. And so in both El Salvador, we may see you know, the return of mining to the first country in the world to ban it completely. And and in the Philippines, the Oceana Gold Project is up and running again.
1: And, of course, there's no joy from the, the new president of the Philippines either.
6: No, exactly. And then, exactly. And we now have in the Philippines, we have the, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator in the Philippines. And a dictator who, by the way, was very involved with many mines in the Philippines. And after he was deposed in 1986, it became clear that he actually held ownership in a lot of mines in the Philippines and probably a lot of the gold that his family was accused of having buried it out of the country came from these mines. So he was a 50% owner of a mine in Marinduque called the Mark Copper Mine, which was the other 49% was owned by a Canadian company, Placer Dome and later Barrick Gold. So now his son who you know is the son of the father who was very pro mining and and who actually was very involved with a lot of mines and probably largely enriched through these mines is now the president. So yeah, there's a great deal of despondency in the communities that are are either dealing with mines in their backyards or or are hoping to stop mines from coming in to begin with.
1: Is there any chance of legal action? I remember last time we spoke, you did mention there'd been a couple of cases and there was one pending. Legal action?
6: Yes. So there, there were some cases. So during the time of the blockade, so after the the mine's lease had ended, there were a number of legal cases that were being explored to see whether uh, particularly around indigenous rights to consultation could be brought to bear because, of course, the company had already put in for a new lease, a new, a new mining lease, and what people were, some of the Philippine lawyers that were really at the forefront of this were arguing was that the indigenous um, Ifigao and Tuwali peoples had not been properly consulted according to Philippine law. But I don't think those cases have prospered, um, obviously not since the mine has received its lease again.
1: What about in Canada itself?
6: Yeah, I, there isn't anything at the moment, uh, or any opening or possibility for legal action in Canada. What we are pushing for, and this would be really significant if it, if it came to pass, we're pushing for legislation in Canada that would actually make access to courts for people who've been harmed by Canadian mining companies operating overseas, possible. So it would be possible that they would have access to our courts directly. And this is a piece of legislation called Mandatory Human Rights and Environmental Due Diligence. It's a a mouthful, but what it essentially means is that all companies headquartered in Canada or having a significant nexus to Canada, like trading on our stock exchange, would have to do due diligence on the human rights and environmental risks that they pose through their operations everywhere in the world. So no matter what, if it's not a parent company directly but through a subsidiary, they are responsible for the the activities of their subsidiaries and their contractors. So it's a supply chain legislation. And they have to report on their due diligence of the risks they pose both environmentally and to human rights every year So those reports would come out and we could, of course, contest those reports. But also, if people are harmed, they can actually take their case to court directly in Canada. And that would be a game changer. Right now, it's very, very difficult to bring a case in Canada. The two main hurdles are – the one hurdle is that parent companies headquartered in Canada say, oh, that wasn't us, that was our subsidiary, because they always set up subsidiaries wherever they operate around the world. So that, what they call the corporate veil, piercing the corporate veil is always a problem. And the other problem is always that the Canadian courts will tend to say, well, the case should be heard in the country where the ha- harm was done. But very often this is in countries where the legal system is not very strong and has a lot of political influence and corruption is an issue. And so this legislation that we has actually been tabled now through a private member's bill in Canada and that we've been championing, championing for quite a while it was tabled last year. That bill is really significant because it would get us through those two legal hurdles. It would say, no, it doesn't matter if it was your subsidiary that did it. The person can take you to court in Canada because you have to do due diligence over your subsidiary. And it also gets through the issue of what they call forum, forum nonconvenience, which is that to say that the case should be heard in the country where the harm is done. This bill says, no, These cases can be heard in Canada, and that would make a huge difference. But it's a long uphill battle, I think, to get this legislation passed. The private members bill has been tabled, but that's just the first step. Yes, it should be the
1: same for all first world countries who go into countries of the south and do their dirty deeds and get away with things that they wouldn't get away with in their own country
6: yeah exactly and i i should I should mention that we are tabling this legislation in we've tabled this legislation in Canada, but this is a, a global movement, and the Australian human rights groups are also very much involved with pushing to have similar legislation passed in australia it does it is a mouthful, but it's called mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence and like I said, it's a mouthful, and it doesn't really explain, but what it essentially does is it really puts the responsibility for the harm done by overseas operations on the parent company, and it provides access to courts in the, parent, in the, in the home country of these, these multinationals. And so, yes, Australian organizations are also um, pushing for this, as, as are U.S. and European. And in Europe, they're the furthest along, and France, this bill has already been passed. So this is already in law in France and Germany and the Netherlands are looking at passing similar bills, are very close, and now the whole European Union is on the verge of passing due diligence legislation. So, you know, this is something whose time has come, but we will still see the industry fight tooth and nail to stop these types of bills from being passed in countries like Australia and, and Canada, which are so, you know, such big mining countries. Any final words, Catherine? I just really appreciate the the opportunity to to speak to, you know, it's rare. Unfortunately, it's rare that we have politicians that have really dedicated their political life to service and to fight against very powerful interests like the mining industry and on behalf of indigenous rights, on behalf of of more sustainable futures in agriculture and and Governor Padilla was was one of those rare people and he made a huge difference. The fight continues, the struggle continues to maintain some of the gains that he made for people but he's been a, a shining light and still very inspirational for those who continue to struggle for social justice in the Philippines and in El Salvador.
1: And we can only hope we can find another
6: governor to carry on the job that he began. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and the rest of civil society as well. You know, it's not just elected officials. Although we, we, you know, when you when you get that support from elected officials, it makes the work of of just the the, the everyday people and civil society organizations so much better.
1: And very brave people. Exactly. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. And Catherine Cummins works for Mining Watch Canada as a research coordinator and the Asia-Pacific Program Coordinator.
4: The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.
5: Have you heard of Long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of Long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience Long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID. As a keyword.
11: A three CR supporter.
9: Three CR's annual Radiothon Fundraiser launches in June. We
8: need your financial support to be independent, community controlled, and focused on people rather than profit.
1: On May 15, Palestinians around the world marked the 75th anniversary of Nakba, Arabic for Catastrophe, where over 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their homes and 530 villages destroyed. In Melbourne, rallies were held at both Parliament House and the State Library and what follows are the speeches by both Australian supporters and Australian Palestinians. We begin with longtime supporter of Palestine Aboriginal activist Gary Foley and here we followed up by Palestinian activist Maya and finally Green Senator for Victoria Janet Rice and trade union leader Sharon
12: Burrows. I'm here today yet again the first time that indigenous political activists in this country expressed overt solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters was over 50 years ago. It was around then that it had dawned on some of us in the black political movement that the situation of our Palestinian brothers and sisters was extraordinarily similar to ours. Our countries. Our homelands had been invaded and occupied by brutal settler colonial societies and that to this day the situation remains the same where the struggle for justice, for the justice, for the struggle for our sovereignty, self-determination, political and economic independence continues in this country in the same way it does in the homeland of the Palestinian people. Our struggles go on. In Australia, I'm not going to talk about the voice. All you need to know is that it doesn't matter whether you vote yes or vote no. It will change nothing. It's yet another government attempt to deflect from the real issues of self-determination and political and economic independence. And until such times as we achieve that, until such times as the Palestinian people are free, we shall continue to inhabit the streets, occupy the land in front of... Uh, The old Justice there who hung Ned Kelly, that's who that is there, folks. He's uh, getting his just desserts, getting shat on by a million pigeons every year. So in front of our colonial reminders of what was done to us, I say yet again, I express solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Gumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. I also express it on behalf of all of those indigenous political activists who understand. And to all our non-indigenous, non-Palestinian brothers and sisters here today, help us maintain the struggle maintain the rage and keep up the fight fight
7: good afternoon everyone assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh i acknowledge and pay respect to the woranjeri people of Colon nation whose land i live and work upon always was always will be aboriginal land always was always will be aboriginal land al nakba mustamira the nakba is ongoing since 75 years, in every Palestinian home, in every family, in every picture on the wall, in the clothes that we wear, in our dialogues, in the refugee camps, at the checkpoints, at the barriers between the house and the farm, or the house and the school, in the travel documents that we force to hold or possess in the occupation jails we commemorate Nakba every single day it's 75 years of pain of Nakba of settler colonialism of ethnic cleansing of apartheid, land theft of war crimes of massacres of forced expulsion of impunity, of suffering, and of denial. The ethnic cleansing and the massacre that conducted in 500 Palestinian villages will remain a shameful spot in the human history and the history of the occupation. And those who supported, according to to the statistics of Anurwa in 2021, There are 5.7 million Palestinian refugees registered with Anirwa, and other millions are not registered in diaspora. All of them are deprived from the right of return by the occupation to their homeland, Palestine. While any Jew have no connection whatsoever with Palestine, can become First class citizen in Abba Israel. Shame. The Resolution 194 by the General Assembly 1948 clearly gives the right to the Palestinian people to return to their homes. But as we all know, Israel is above the law and that has been supported by democracies like Australia and America. My friends, I'm from Tantura, the best beautiful beach in Palestine that the Zionist massacre in 1948. On May 23rd, 1948, after, six weeks after the infamous massacre of Dariusin, and one week after the declaration of the Zionist entity, Alexanderoni, the terrorist brigade attacked my village. From sea and land, the Zionist terrorists, started killing any man, any man walking in the village before they went house to house, killing, torturing, detaining. All men over 17 years old has been killed. They gathered all men on the beach and asked them to dig their graves. And after they finish, the Zionists shot them dead. Also any women showed any type of resistance has been killed. The night was a turning moment in the history of our peaceful village, forever. More than 250 were killed and 100 others detained. Because my grandfather was killed one year before the massacre at the hand of British soldier, my grandmother didn't know where to go after the massacre. Especially after the Zionist detained her her older son, who was just 18 years old, she walked by on foot with her six kids, along with 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 her sister, with her seven kids, to the nearest village, Alifradis, where they were expelled again to to the West Bank. In the West Bank, the Refugee journey of the family started and not ended until this moment. Until this moment, we have family members from our family living in refugee camps after 75 years of the massacre in the West Bank. There was no NHCR or ANURA or any type of humanitarian organization that can support the refugees. So my my grandmother ended up in a truck going to Iraq. Her sister ended up in a truck going to Syria. The family split, separated. The heroic stories of the Palestinian women during and after Nakba is often underrepresented and sometimes ignored. My grandfather Nijme, which is the Arabic word for a star, was not broken by the theft of her home and the killing of her family members and the deten- detention of her son, the loss of her daughter and the separation from her, her only sister. She embarked an extraordinary journey to Iraq, a country she had known no one in. This widow learned to become a midwife, to be independent and support her kids. She not only just supported her kids, but the 20 orphan from the extended family. She worked until she reached 80 years old. The only dream for her was to go back and swim in Tantura Beach, her name was a star, indeed she was a star and forever her story will remain in our heart. In 2019, I was able to return to my village after 70 years of the massacre and participated in the march of return to Tantura, which organized by Palestinian Association in 48. When I reached the village and my, fa- my, my friend, but her car, she told me now we are standing on what used to be the cemetery of Pantura and your grandfather might be buried here. The village was demolished after the massacre to erase the crimes from the history of the Zionists and has been replaced by two resort, by two Zionist resorts Dur and Nahshalim. Last year, I I also went back to Palestine and visited my beautiful village, and we will continue to go until we we return for good. We will return for good. My friend, Israel killed nearly 200 Palestinians in the start of the year. As we speak now, there is ongoing Nakba. At the moment, we have 4,780 Palestinian prisoners in the occupation jails. Out of them, 29 women, 160 under 18 years old, including six kids under 15 years old. We have 915 under administrative detention. Khidr Adnan, two weeks ago, murdered in the jail because the only weapon he has is to stop eating it's an obvious, obvious assassination by the occupation forces, and I'm not sure for how long this impunity for Israel will continue. Shame, shame on the Australian government who congratulated the Zionist entity by their creation. I'm ending my words with the hope that when we walk all from this gathering today, we will keep in our minds and hearts the victims of Nakba and the survivors who vanished in exile and never stopped dreaming of Auda? We shall return. Free, free Palestine!
10: Thank you. It is a privilege and humbling to be here, to see all of you here working for justice for Palestine. I want to acknowledge, of course, that we are on the lands of First Nations peoples here, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and acknowledge their struggle for justice, acknowledge that this is Aboriginal land. It always was, it always will be Aboriginal land, and that we need to keep working for justice for our Australian First Nations peoples, just as we are working for justice for Palestinians. Human rights matter for everyone, no matter where you are, whether you are a First Nations person here in Australia, whether you're a Palestinian in Palestine, whether you are a Tibetan who is under the occupation of the Chinese government. And we need to keep working for justice. That's why I want to thank you for being here. I mean, listening to the heartbreaking stories that Muad just shared, it is easy to think that is just too much to bear. You think what people have been through. You think of the loss of life, the ongoing Nakba, the ongoing catastrophe. And it is so easy for us here in Australia to just turn away and to say, that's not my struggle, and to feel helpless, to feel hopeless. And for every one of you here today, the number of people that think, oh, yes, something's going on in Palestine, and they turn away. So I want to thank you for not turning away. I want to thank you for being here and being witness to that ongoing Nakba, the ongoing catastrophe, the ongoing injustice, the ongoing death. It is so hard to know what we can do, how to make a difference, but there is a lot that we can do. There is a lot more that the Australian government should be doing. We should not be cooperating with the far-right extremist Israeli government. We should not be having military cooperation with them. We should not be importing military equipment from them and we should be calling out what is going on. We should be calling out the injustice, the deaths, the killings, the oppression of the Palestinian people. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. We should be pushing hard to end the settlements and to repatriate Palestinians back to Palestine. We should be... Ending the settlements and telling the Israeli people that they do not belong there on their occupied land. It is hard, as I said, to know where you can start, what you can do, what you can connect with. You hear the awful stories that we have just heard about the Tantura massacre, and you know that the the injustice is continuing. One of the stories that I wanted to share with you today is... letter that was recently sent to me by Mohammed Al Halibi. Mohammed Al Halibi was the head of the World Vision's operations in Gaza until seven years ago when on trumped up charges the Israelis arrested him and jailed him. A year ago in their completely unjust court system um, was found to be guilty and he is now languishing in jail. Mohammed writes to me regularly as he does to other Australian politicians and I was really privileged to organise a briefing from his son Khalil in the Australian Parliament a couple of years ago. But Mohammed wrote to me last week and I want to share you the letter that he sent me. I'm writing to you on the eve of al-Fitr, from behind the bars of a prison in which I was unjustly put in, from where I've spent the past seven years of my life and still waiting many years to come. It's now seven years had passed and I did not have the opportunity to see the stars or colour of the sky and did not get the pleasure of inhaling the morning fragrance. In this intimate occasion, there is nothing compensates for family reunion and nothing equals embracing my children. Seven bleak years, like the darkness of a wild night, I spent in a cell whose metal door has been changed three times and nothing around me has changed.' Seven years had passed, I am missing everything in addition to my freedom. I miss looking at the sky, touching the soil and the leaves of trees, to touch the skin of my children who are left too young and who no no longer could distinguish the features of their faces. Seven years have passed in which I witnessed 14 feasts swallowed sorrow and pain in a dark and dirty cell whose walls are stained with blood. For nothing wrong I have committed except that I was performing my humanitarian tasks in a professional and sincere fashion, defending the common human values and the right of the poor to live in dignity. I know that my children miss me too much in these moments and that they are desperate for a father to embrace them, buy them eat clothes, sit with them at the breakfast table like any father. However, I apologise to them for the ugly face of the world that allows politicians and ruling regimes to impose the conditions of their tyranny and reach the furthest extent of abuse enjoying the suspicious silence and hypocrisy of the international community. Yes, Israel may have succeeded in passing its plot and imprisoned me but I never lost the battle of dignity where I did not accept to plead guilty simply because my dignity and reputation are not not a commodity for sale or bargaining. Mohammed's story is just one story of the oppression of the Israeli government against the Palestinian people. I urge you to listen to those stories, to hold them in your heart, and then to take action. And for us as Australians, that means taking action and getting our Australian government to do more until we have justice and until Palestine is free. Thank you.
9: 75 years, 1948, most of us were not born, and yet the scars of that atrocity and indeed the occupation by the British before that live on in your hearts, in our hearts, and the tragedy of the ongoing ethnic cleansing, exile, occupation, these things can never be forgotten. So congratulations for turning out today. I've stood on the the soil of the West Bank, of Gaza. I've stood with the unions in Palestine, I've watched them try to build all the things that workers absolutely demand in any country under occupation – jobs, minimum wages, social protection, even as they were fighting for freedom and uh, a peace and recognition. I've watched and indeed been in UN vehicles when the settlers have stoned the vehicles because the UN was trying to help the Palestinians. I've seen the aftermath of the attacks by Israeli soldiers on youth in Palestine out trying to enjoy a Saturday night. I've seen and stood on the lands in Gaza of destroyed schools and hospitals. I can tell you, everybody, everybody should be standing here today saying free Palestine. The world has failed your people. The world has failed us in regard to peace in that part of the world. There are some 58 conflicts in the world today but we must remind those leaders not to forget that they failed Palestine and it's time. It's time for freedom, for the right to be an independent nation, for an end to an apartheid state and, of course, to break down the barriers of those tragic refugee camps where people survive day by day by day, year after year, because they can't go home to their own lands. So as we acknowledge, in fact, that we are on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, of the Kulin Nation that we acknowledge that we have history here in Australia to actually settle. We mustn't forget, so too do you, and that solidarity lives on in the unions of the world. The ITUC has a clear position of support for free Palestine. Workers of the world stand with you today, and even though I'm now the former General Secretary of the ITSC and I'm delighted to be home back in Melbourne. I can assure you that the unions of the world stand with you. An end to an apartheid state, the right to an independent free nation, the right to dignity, peace and indeed the self-governance that you seek. But right now the demand is to get those planes and bombs out of Gaza to get people out of the villages in Jerusalem that are taking over the Palestinians' home, to end the violence, and to bring back some hope for a free Palestine. You are incredible in your stand, in your solidarity, in your determination to see the families, communities, the villages, the institutions of Palestine, not only protected, but indeed secured for future generations. I stand with you today because this is an injustice where the world has failed people of Palestine. Solidarity, free Palestine. You've
1: been listening to the speakers at the Nakba rally at the State Library on the 15th of May. Next, the rally at Parliament House in Melbourne and the speakers were Jeremy Small, Hajar and Nasha Meshni.
3: And what a beautiful sight. A really important rally to commemorate 75 years of genocide and dispossession. To celebrate 75 years of resistance and struggle and to commit ourselves to that ongoing resistance and struggle and solidarity that will see a free Palestine. And I'm very pleased to the rally organisers for inviting me to say a few words on behalf of Victorian socialists. A few of us got very close to getting elected to this House last year, would have been the first time that I know of that someone who's been arrested for civil disobedience to obstruct the Israeli state would actually have sat in the Victorian Parliament. We'll give it another go next time. But in the meantime, we're not letting the grass grow under our feet. And obviously the Israelis aren't either. 34 dead I hear in Gaza this week. And that phrase again that we hear so often, collateral damage. It's just collateral damage. I guess I guess it's just collateral damage. The 111 people, is it, killed just this year in the West Bank with the Israeli authorities in another futile attempt to destroy the Palestinian resistance. I guess many of those deaths are just collateral damage. Maybe the 1,000 people right now in Israeli jails, 1,000 Palestinians right now in Israeli jails on administrative detention. No charge. No trial. No chance of a trial. 1,000 people right now. I guess that's just... Collateral damage. I guess 800,000 people expelled and countless thousands murdered in 1948. I guess that is just collateral damage to the Zionists for their project of genocide and dispossession and apartheid. And that's what their project is. But we're here at Parliament, which of course is the scene of the crime or one of the scenes of the crime here in Australia. And a lot of people here would be aware of a particular... Partnership. I want to talk about solidarity, but the other side have their sort of solidarity as well. And two years ago, the Daniel Andrews Labor government issued a press release celebrating their partnership with Elbert Systems. Elbert Systems, and it sounds like everyone here knows that Elbert, System is, Elbert Systems is the biggest Israeli-based defence contractor. And they advertise their products of surveillance of death, of control, of of spying, they they do all of that and they advertise all of those products as battle-tested. Battle-tested, of course, on the heroic people of Palestine. And two years ago, when the Daniel Andrews government issued a press release about this new partnership between the State of Victoria and Elbert Systems, the, the industry minister said this, we're proud to be supporting Elbert to grow its global footprint in Melbourne. And we know about Elbert's bloodied footprint. We know that Elbert has been the boot on the Palestinian neck for the whole of its existence. We know that those bloody footprints of Elbert drapes through the capitals of the world and here in Melbourne. And they help to manufacture the chains that hold Palestinians down. And not only that, the chains of production that are gearing up to a new world war with Australia, and the Dan Andrews Labour government is part of that, Seeing that as an opportunity for business, for jobs, for growth, I think it's sick. I think it's obscene to announce that sort of partnership. And of course Victorian socialists, and I'm sure everyone here stands for a very different sort of partnership indeed. A partnership of solidarity with an extraordinary example of resistance of innovation, of steadfastness, which is the Palestinian people's resistance since 1948, all the way through 2008, through the bombardments of Gaza in 2014 and 2019, 2021 and right now. We stand in solidarity with that because we know that the the systems that are produced in, in Israel, those systems of surveillance and of war, are part of the Australian government effort leading us to a new world war. That is what they are leading us towards, $368 billion worth of nuclear submarines. I don't know whether Elbert Systems, as part of the partnership, will get part of that work, but that's what we're headed towards. We say that Australian workers, that ordinary people in this country, have no interest in that, to have no benefit to be derived from any of that. We're for ripping up that contract with Elbert Systems, we're for ripping up the contract for $368 billion worth of nuclear-powered death, we're for ripping up the whole lot, and we're for standing in solidarity forever with the people of Palestine until we can say in truth that Palestine is free. So thank you very much and congratulations on your resistance. Cheers.
11: Thank you, you, Jeremy, And thank you everyone who are here today with us on the steps of Parliament House because we want our parliamentarians to hear us. We want the Australian government to hear us. That you can never stand with an apartheid, violent military complex and come out unscathed. We have a moral duty to stand with humanity. We need to stand with the oppressed. And I tell you now, we the Palestinians, we are the oppressed. But we are not the silent. Because we will continue to resist that oppression. We stand tall, we stand proud, and we are not cowed. I'd like, you to, I'd like to welcome our next speaker, a young Palestinian woman, Hajar. A very strong vocal voice within the Palestinian movement, but also part of Socialist Alternative and has also been involved in campaigning for Palestine on um, the campaign trail last year. Today marks 75 years of Palestinian resistance against the sustained campaign of ethnic cleansing, of dispossession and genocide. The, is, the state of Israel as we know it today could not exist without the genocide and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Every settlement they establish is on stolen Palestinian land. Every house they build is on the destruction of a Palestinian house, a family that is expelled um, with the force of violence being threatened against them. Western capitalist countries like to paint themselves as the you know, bastions of democracy, um, but they all back this barbaric regime to the hilt. The US funds them $4 billion every single year in military aid. They don't care about the countless lives that get destroyed and are lost just so they can perpetuate their imperialist domination um, all over the Middle East. It is a cruel joke that our own government over here pretends to care about uh, human rights. You know, just think about, you know, the oppression of indigenous people, the treatment of refugees um, and, you know, all of the fascist governments around the world looking up to the way that our own government treats refugees no surprise then that the Australian government backs them to the hilt. Just a week ago, our own government representatives were celebrating Israeli independence and thanking them for making the desert bloom as if it isn't built on, you know, the bloodshed and destruction of millions of innocent Palestinians who above all else want nothing more than the right of return and take back everything that was stolen from them. Greedy politicians and warmongering imperialists and the parasitic layer at the top of our society will always stand hand in hand in history. So that's why we can't keep seeking justice for every Palestinian that is brutally you know, dispossessed and every person that is facing oppression um, within the same system that perpetuates us to this barbarism. We and the Palestinian people living under um, brutal apartheid know this. It's the reason why this movement is constantly set ablaze by heroic acts of resistance and refusing to back down for 75 years. The Palestinian struggle plays a vital role in galvanizing political movements around the world that have the power to shake the system to its core. The Second Intifada became a key reason why millions of Egyptians rose up and overthrew a 30-year dictatorship that rocked the Arab world. This movement is characterized by strength and humanity no matter where you are, who you are, or how old you are. If an elderly woman can stand unafraid in the face of a military tank, if a child can defend their home with rocks and staring down the barrel of a rifle, then anyone and all of us can resist. As people who care about liberation, it's important that we stay serious and dedicated to the Palestinian cause. Through always looking for ways to agitate, through always challenging the status quo and never losing sight of how any struggle was overcome through revolution and through struggle. On this day, we mourn our family members, we mourn our stolen lands, we mourn our freedom, but we also commemorate the fighters that have dedicated their lives to our struggle, dedicated their lives against fighting back against this rotten system, both inside Palestine and outside of Palestine. So I'd like to um, end with a famous quote We all know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of Palestinians. None of us are free until we are all free. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine!
5: Palestine. Just one more speech and I want to end it off with this. Do not let the arrogance of the Israeli and the American states delude you. Better societies, better cultures have existed and fallen and they are no exception I plead to you today that it is us who are better and don't let them trick you do not let them trick you they are not going to be inevitable they will fall and on top of their fall we will stand victorious proud and we will win 75 years and we still got it in the bag in our hearts and in our voices so just know that the victory of palestine is secured that the israelis are retreating and that we will win 100% across the globe and on that i would like to welcome a mentor a leader and one of the oldest palestinian advocates in our community nasser from apan
4: Thank you. That was almost a good introduction. I'm like his big brother, old. Thank you everyone for coming out today. Today, as you've heard, we're here to commemorate a Nakba, the loss of Palestine. But before that, I want to thank everyone on behalf of Palestinians in Australia, but Palestinians around the world for showing up today. And in particular, I just had a question from a Palestinian asking me what the Aboriginal flag is doing here if you're a palestinian and you don't know we are standing on stolen land you need to be educated this always was and always will be aboriginal land we're the settlers here so our indigenous brothers and sisters who come out always uncle gary who for years and years has stood with us we thank you so very much brother Because Palestinians know what it's like to live as a refugee in your own country, to be colonised, to be dispossessed, to be told you don't belong, to be vilified for our resistance, to be killed and jailed for no other reason than we're native. In particular, also, where's our Loud Jew collective, our Jewish brothers and sisters? Thank you, because we know how hard how hard it is to break ranks within your community. And we love you so very much and thank you for standing with us. And our fight is your fight and your fight is our fight. Thank you. And our fight is incomplete, as Hajar was just saying, without the freedom of all people, all colonised people and all those communities that join us today. Thank you. We heard earlier about 75 years ago, 750,000 Palestinians ethnically cleansed, 530 villages wiped off the face of the earth, And we need to remember that Nakba isn't just 75 years old, it's in fact 142 years old, with the first Jewish colonisation happening in 1881 in Palestine. Some people talk about Palestine in a post-Nakba sense. There is no post-Nakba, we're in Nakba now, we are absolutely living Nakba times, there is no history. Last week we witnessed the murder of Sheikh Hadar Adnan, 12 times incarcerated under administrative detention sheikh hader was a freedom fighter who was ready to pay the ultimate price for palestine it took 86 days for israel to kill sheikh hader and sheikh Hadr didn't want to die he wanted to live but he would only live under his terms sheikh hader chose death and its freedom over israel's occupation repression and apartheid. Sheikh Hadar is an inspiration to millions of Palestinians and those that fight against colonialism around the world because he embodies what colonialists, racists fear, the unbreakable spirit of an indigenous people. Let us all share and bask in his spirit, his despicable jailers ate pizza and shawarma while he was starving himself to death. They asked him how much weight had he lost. He said, don't ask me how much weight I lost. Ask me how my dignity has increased. Sheikh Hadar joins a long list of Palestinian uh, martyrs who were assassinated or killed in May. We commemorate the one-year anniversary of the assassination of Shirin Abu Akla. Only yesterday, Israel issued an apology Not before they gaslit our entire movement and said it was us that killed her, that she was killed in crossfire. It took a year for them to admit it was them. She was assassinated because she spoke truth to power. In an ideal world, she should still be reporting for us with her smile on TV and Sheikh Adnan should still be baking bread for us. But they're not because we don't live in that ideal world, which is why we have to keep fighting. The Israelis in the past couple of months have been rallying for democracy. Their democracy is apartheid, is our oppression, is them standing on our throats. Benjamin Netanyahu tried to reclaim the agenda, so he started a fight in Al-Aqsa and he failed there. And with poll numbers falling, he went to the tried and true formula in Israel and that's to mow the lawn in Gaza. What we've seen is over 30 people killed in the past Three days, and because every wartime leader, be they anywhere in the world, their poll numbers boost when you're a wartime leader, a prime minister, president. So they've killed those Palestinians, but the Palestinians around the world have come together to say no. And we don't need to just commemorate, but we should also celebrate. Celebrate the steadfastness of the Palestinian people. Celebrate the fact that we're still here. Celebrate those still clutching their keys and the title deeds to their homes, teaching their kids our song, our dance, our culture, our people. Stand strong and celebrate who we are. Celebrate the steadfastness, the resistance, the fight against colonialism. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. The Palestinian fight is the Aboriginals' fight. It's the fight all settler colonies, whether they're in Western Sahara, West Papua, Hawaii, Canada, New Zealand... It's in Xinjiang province. That fight is all of our fight together. And we know killing Palestinians is not something new. They've been killing Palestinians for years. And as Jerome was talking about Alban systems, shame on them partnering with our Victorian government here. Israel may have the technological advantage. They don't have the moral uh, advantage. They lack the most ingredient that all Palestinians have, and that's love. We teach love, love for our land, love for our people, love for our culture, love for everyone. Zionism and all its supremacy and hate can never win. We dream of inclusions, of inclusion. Zionists dream of exclusion. We dream of coexistence. Zionists deny our very existence. We live in hope. They live in fear. Palestinians have morality, dignity, determination and justice on our side. And today we honour our brothers and sisters as they stand with us today. My friends, it's so important that we all work together. Palestine's the litmus test. Speak to your friends, your colleagues, your workmates, your unions, your churches and talk to them about what you've learned today. Talk to them about Palestine. Ask them for their position on Palestine. For if their position on Palestine is correct you'll know you're dealing with a fellow human being on the right side of history. If they are no good on Palestine, they are no good. Save your time, save your energy. Do not try and convince someone who's progressive except for Palestine that Palestine deserves their time. They are not worthy of yours. We dream of a day when Palestine can once again be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious society where we can all live together. And I ask you today, ladies and gentlemen, solidarity is not a verb. We heard that. Solidarity means you've got to do something. We're asking you to do something. Support the boycott and divestment and sanction movement. When you go shopping, make sure your products aren't made in Israel. Don't buy soda stream if you're at a friend's house and you see it. Use it as an opportunity to educate them. Don't admonish them. They've already bought it. But make sure they know so they can stop their friends from buying it as well. Support Palestinian media. Follow Palestinians. Donate. We had the buckets go around before. Join Free Palestine Melbourne. Join APAN. Make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, Palestine is winning. The discourse is changing and it's becoming more and more visible every day and it's because of people like you doing what you're doing. Continue doing it. Continue speaking truth to power because Palestine needs you now more than ever.
8: Kafias are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes fafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations, from the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs. All scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours we your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a 3CR supporter.